Now on the Business Radio X Network, Conscious Capitalism, elevating humanity through business in Southern Arizona. Your hosts, Sarah McLaren and Jeremy Neese. Southern Arizona does good business, and we want to talk about it. Welcome to the Conscious Capitalism radio show and podcast, streaming live and on, de- on demand from the Tucson Business Radio X studio. Conscious Capitalism is an international movement promoting business as a force for good. The Conscious Capitalism movement has 50 plus chapters in the United States and internationally, including Arizona with a lot of activity down in the southern part of the state. We are bringing people together to make it easier for Southern Arizona businesses to do good business and to partner with organizations who know successful companies value all of their stakeholders, including the communities in which they operate. On this show, we want to make, we want to shine a light on real world examples of good business happening right in our own backyards. We invite leaders in our community to share their stories and experiences, to tell us about their personal journey through the world of business, to let us know what makes their organizations great and how they go about bringing value to Southern Arizona. If you would like to learn more about conscious capitalism and the community of people forming around it, please visit ConsciousCapitalismAZ.com to learn more or reach out to Sarah and I. So let's get into some good business and introduce you to the voices who will be participating in today's conversations. I'll begin with myself. I am Jeremy Neese, one of your hosts. My day job is with Retirement Evolutions, where we provide long-range wealth planning services, helping people to invest in what they value. I thank them for their support of this show and uh, my volunteering efforts within Conscious Capitalism, uh, where I am called to the slogan of elevating humanity through good business. And I'm Sarah McCarran. Uh, I'm with McCarran Compliance, and we are a workplace safety training and consulting company specializing in MSHA, OSHA, and DOT. We are a purpose-based business, and we believe our purpose is to create communities where we all watch out for each other. So as far as our guests today, we have Danny Nee. Danny has two decades of experience in public and nonprofit sectors with a focus on community and economic development. In his current position as executive director of Community Investment Corp, a nonprofit local and economic development organization and alternative lender, Danny launched a social impact lending program which incentivizes community-minded borrowers through preferred rates and terms. As co-founder of Single Focus Web, a website development company he started with his wife Cecily, Danny also brings the perspective of an entrepreneur to his work. He is a graduate of John Hopkins University, where he captained the nationally ranked Division III men's basketball team. Woo woo! (laughs) As sports fans, we can't let that go. Um, He holds a master's degree in city and regional planning and business administration from Rutgers University and the University of Arizona, respectively. He was named one of uh, Biz Tucson's 40 Under 40 in 2007 for his contributions to the profession and the community. Thank you so much for being with us, Danny. Thanks for having me. And we also have Kevin Cook. Kevin is one of the leaders of Technicians for Sustainability, which he helped co-found in 2003. TFS is a mission-driven company specializing in renewable energy and sustainable technologies for residential and commercial settings. TFS is a Tucson-based employee-owned cooperative that has also achieved the designation of being a certified B Corp. We'll tell you more about that in case you're not sure. And Kevin has a background as a neuroscientist and a mountaineer. Uh, Curious already. Uh, Kevin came to sustainability through his connection to nature. He believes in living symbiotically with his environment, which has led him to spend over 18 years in the renewable energy field. He is an NABCEP certified photovoltaic, uh, certified in photovoltaic, sorry. Although, you know, he says he lives symbiotically, so he may feel like he can, you know, take that on as a uh, as, as a noun, a new pronoun, right? <laughs> and uh, he and his family live in a PV, solar hot, uh, solar hot water and gray water system. So uh, he, uh, he walks the talk, I guess, <laughs> and fully, accurate. yep. So thank you so much for being here, Kevin. My pleasure. So we like to get started with learning about you two as individuals before we dive into the big organization discussions. So Danny, we can start with you. You want to give just a little 
dime tour, dollar tour, whatever you feel. We have an hour, so feel sure. free of the, what led you to your uh, vocational stance right now and some of the stops along the way. Uh, sure. Uh, well, I uh, grew up in Northern California, and uh, my dad was a teacher, and I uh, followed him into teaching uh, straight out of college. And um, at some point, I, um, although it was I, I always say it's the favorite job I ever had. I was a kindergarten teacher and a seventh grade, eighth grade English teacher. Um, that eventually I, I wanted to have a bigger impact than just on um, the kids I saw every day, you know, uh, five classes of kids. And so I went into um, community development. And um, that is where I got my start in nonprofit. I uh, worked in housing, um, in public housing uh, in New Jersey. Um, for four years before moving to Tucson about 15 years ago now. Um, what brought you here? Uh, I was actually, um, got married at the time and uh, moved out because uh, my wife had a, a job. It's uh, That was my first wife. She had a job um, here in Tucson, and um, that's why I came out. But it was also closer to uh, my home in, in California. I have a brother who lives in San Diego. And the weather's uh, slightly... <laughs> it's yes, exactly. Um, so it was, you know, it's a little more of a chill place out here, a little more my vibe. Um, nice. And yeah, and so basically got into nonprofit, and then eventually as as part of working a nonprofit, um, I think you quickly realize how important money actually is. It's an interesting um, sort of tension all the time. Um, but you know, you can have all the passion in the world, but if you don't have the um, the money uh, to back that passion, you won't have the same impact. And um, that really got me into sort of management and the business side. And now I work at a local economic development organization um, that that deals more uh, specifically with money than I probably ever thought I would when I was a creative writing major uh, <laughs> at Johns Hopkins. So there you go. Love it. Thanks for sharing that. Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, let's give you a chance to do the same. You want to Give your thumbnail sketch for everyone, please. Yeah, well, I I got interested in the energy field when I was living in uh, the greater New York City metropolitan area and just watching the uh, massive consumption of energy and sort of wondered where does it all come from and how do we sustain this and uh, decided to move back to Tucson in order to uh, try to find a way to... Um, to live a little more sustainably than 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 what I was seeing in, in that environment and hopefully figure out how to share that with other people as well. So that, that sort of started me on my path and I, I bumbled around at some nonprofits trying to find a home until I heard a gentleman from the Sacramento Municipal Utility District who was a U of A graduate who was starting the first, uh, the first that I know of anyway, utility grid-tied um, uh, a program where customers of SMUD, Sacramento Utility um, Municipal Utility District, could get solar on their home uh, supported by the local utility. And he had come back to Tucson to give a talk. I heard that talk and I said, okay, I think that's, that's the uh, solution that I'm looking for where I could help people uh, address the impacts of the energy use that they're having in these urban areas through a, through a, a technological um, advance or adaptation. And, and so I spent the next uh, few years trying to learn about that technology and how to implement it and work with the utilities locally in sorting through all the rules and how do we interconnect with the grid and, and those sorts of things. And it's kind of broadened from there. It seems like every 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 step I take you just opens up other other issues that we are looking to looking to help make better. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. When you um, first came into this and you, you found the Sacramento team that kind of sparked the interest for you, was that rare? Was were there other entities in Tucson doing that, or were you one of the pioneers? In your there were a number of other companies that were installing solar systems at the time, but. The vast majority of that work was for off-grid systems, so people on ranches or uh, out in rural areas who needed power and self-sustaining, supplying the utility. It was just an economic thing, supplying, you know, bringing a utility line 
a mile down the road just wasn't cost, cost effective. And yeah. so um, even though solar was expensive at the time, that was a that was a circumstance where it would play out. And there wasn't a lot of work. Actually, after I decided this is what I wanted to do, I, I went to each of those companies and asked for a job. And everybody told me they didn't have uh, they didn't have enough work, you know, to hire me on. It's possible they just didn't want me. <laughs> I'm but, sure that was it. But, <laughs> but whatever the case, I, I just, it, none of them were really doing the grid tide portion. And so um, one of those companies told me, oh, you should go take a, take, these, take a class at this organization called Solar Energy International in Colorado. I went and spent a month up there taking classes. And I came back and I um, met some people connected to that Sacramento program. And I ended up building a program from scratch to pull people together into a group purchase program and get some of the funds that the Sacramento program had tapped into applied to uh, Tucson customers as well. And so my real entree into into installing systems was uh, implementing these eight people who came together in a group buy uh, for grid tide systems back in 1999. Wow, that's great. You're ahead of your time. Yeah, we appreciate you doing it. I don't know why you keep calling it Sacramento when you have SMUD, SMUD. as, a, as <laughs> an acronym. Yeah, good yeah, point. Because that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I want. I want to start it's, something called it's SMUD. It's hard to pass up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you can actually bring that to life, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kevin, just keep rolling with that and, and tell us how that's evolved into, you know, who TFS is today. Yeah. So... In the early days, I, I worked on this program with the first eight participants that I discussed. After that, I um, at sort of as, as the word got out, we evolved the model to be an educational model. So at the time, solar installations were, uh, were very expensive. The paybacks on these systems from an economic point of view were in the 20-year 20 yeah. 20, 20, 20 range. And we were trying to figure out how do we um, how do how do we make this more viable? There were no incentives at the time. Later, the utilities started to provide incentives, but at the time, it was just the cost of these systems. And so, we uh, I connected with several other people in the community, an activist and an educator, and we formed a nonprofit entity that um, hosted classes. We would teach about a variety of sustainable topics, but particularly about photovoltaics and solar energy. We would have a two-day class where people would learn sort of the academic side of how to install systems, how to size systems, how they work. And then those same people would come into the field and work for a day or two days on an installation. And by doing that, people would actually pay me to, to pay the organization that paid me to, um, for the education and the customer who wanted to get the solar installed on their house would only have to s purchase the equipment that we would continue we continue to buy in bulk based on that initial experience we'd had. So I did that for uh, three more years, and at some point we started getting some momentum, and we were doing enough jobs that I needed staff, not just volunteers, to come in and install these systems. And I met a, a French electrician who was starting Technicians for Sustainability. He was very interested in sustainability, but his background was completely just in electrical uh, installations, contracting. And so he, he and I were a good fit. I didn't have an electrical license. And um, so he and I paired up together in, in 2003. And uh, that's kind of how things took off. That was the beginning of TFS. And not long after that, if I remember correctly, because I met you when I worked as the deputy director at Habitat for Humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin's company would come and they would train people out in the field up on a Habitat house and they would donate the system um, to us. And he did one a year for many years while I was there. So he's got his heart in the in the right wow, place as well. Cool. Yeah. Are you still doing that? No, we don't do that. Yeah, now. I, I, it's because yeah. I left. Obviously, yeah, no. I was yeah. the draw. I was just curious. I'm like, I now when I drive around and if I'm in a habitat, you know, neighborhood, I'm going to be looking because I'm like, I, I didn't know. You know, I want to look for the solar panels on the habitat houses. Yep, so, makes perfect sense to do it. Uh, Danny, tell us more about um, about Community Investment Corp. So you kind of 
touched on it a little bit and who you are and what you're doing, but tell us more, you know, about, you know, the organization, I sure. guess. Sure. So, uh, Community Investment Corporation, or CIC, as we like to call it because it's a mouthful, is um, a 501c3. It's founded in 1996. We're a support organization of the Pima Industrial Development Authority. We were basically created by them um, as, as kind of basically the, the Pima Industrial Development Authority, somebody they have a tax-exempt uh, bond um, authority. Um, and from those deals, um, basically there are resources, financial resources sort of thrown off from those deals and they don't have any staff. So what they did is they created, um, some nonprofits. There are three of us, uh, family housing resources, Southern Arizona land trust and community investment corporation. And, um, we basically, uh, are a nonprofit that were uh, seed funded by them, but now we earn most of our revenue. Um, and we have three basic programs. One is doing bond compliance because they're involved in bond compliance. That's not super sexy. It's a uh, very technical kind of work. Um, uh, we do uh, help with charter schools in the area. They're often uh, funded. Uh, their, mm. um, their facilities are funded through uh, bond financing. And so we help them with compliance. Um, Another thing that we do is we facilitate down payment assistance uh, programs for home ownership. Um, that meets my background where I, um, out of housing, um, we facilitate uh, the city and county home programs, um, Pima Tucson Homebuyer Solutions Program, which is a separate one. They all have sort of different qualifying um, requirements. Um, and then also the mortgage credit certificate program, all three basically help with offsetting the, the cost of either down payment or home ownership. And then the last, um, the last program um, that we've been more focused on is uh, our small business lending portfolio. And um, we basically have a roughly about $3.7 million portfolio. It's, it's fairly small. Um, if you, you know, as I think I said earlier, it's, that's great if you personally have that, but for a bank or somebody else, um, that's not a very big portfolio. Um, and we are really looking at the more and more at the micro space, um, we're talking about loans $10,000 or below. One of the things we've been helping out with uh, recently are we're helping other nonprofits um, see when they potentially could increase their impact through lending. And people don't often associate nonprofits with lending, but if you think of a place like Habitat for Humanity, um, that's exactly their model. They build homes and uh, they sell them for a reduced price, but the homeowners are uh, paying back a mortgage. It's at 0% interest, which is you know wonderful. Um, it's a great savings for them, but it also creates resources uh, for the nonprofit. And in, you know, uh, right now, one of the partnerships we have is with the Community Food Bank, and we are helping them with a food entrepreneur program. And in that case, they are looking to do more than just uh, necessarily hand out food boxes. They're looking at food security. And so they're trying to um, help food entrepreneurs who are bringing healthy foods to our community. Um, and they're very small loans, uh, $5,000 and below. Um, and basically what we do is um, we help underwrite those. Um, a nonprofit like the Community Food Bank probably does not have the uh, financial wherewithal right, or the, the infrastructure, check, the back office, the software that's needed. And so we help them originate service those loans, we actually also pitch in um, half of the money. So it basically doubles what their investment is into it. Um, and we're also helping um, budding entrepreneurs um, who uh, want to try to start businesses. Um, so those are some of the things that, that we're up to. We see our role um, as trying to um, provide access to capital to people who traditionally haven't been able to get it. Um, that's why we're called an alternative lender. Um, you know, if somebody can qualify from a bank, we would send them over to a, a bank. But things like micro lending is not, they're not, that's a not a profitable space. Um, it basically the idea is it takes as much uh, time and energy to originate a you know thousand dollar loan as it does a hundred thousand dollar loan or a million dollar loan. So it just doesn't make sense. We understand that, but we think there's a real need in the community um, for people to have access to capital to 
you know, again, um, I believe that innovation is being left on the table um, because there, you don't have to have a certain amount of money to have a great idea or a dream. And so um, if we are not uh, providing some ways for people um, to potentially fund uh, the startup of an idea, I, I do think um, we're leaving money on the table locally here in, in Tucson. So you talk, you said, I mean, just so many, <laughs> you know, programs that you're, you know, that, are, you know, fall under the umbrella. I feel like I'm talking like you now, but uh, Jer- you as being Jeremy for listeners. But if it's good, uh, I'll take it. Yeah. It's bad. Can we point it to Kevin? So like about five times I was like going to wait for you to stop so I could ask more. But I, so with so many interesting things, I'm just going to ask of all of those, which is kind of your, you know, baby. So I'm sure the bond compliance is top on your list, but what's, what's, what's the second <laughs> most exciting thing that you're doing? And then maybe I could ask you a little bit more about that one. Sure. Uh, I mean, and, and the other programs are important in part because they, uh, they create resources for oh, us sure. to do our community work. Um, so there is that piece. Um, I think the micro lending and what we um, consider social impact lending, and the idea is we uh, have come up with a definition of what we call enhanced community benefit. And what we're what we're saying to the community is, if you're doing something that is good business but also good for the community, uh, we we want to invest in it, and we will um, give you know an incentivized uh, better interest rate, um, better fees, um, things like that on traditional loan. Um, that's, I think, what excites uh, me as well as um, the micro lending space where, again, you're helping people um, either start or expand uh, their dreams. There are, and just to throw out this idea, we spend a lot of time um, on celebrity CEOs and, you know, we want to know, you know, what Mark Zuckerberg is up to and these types of things. And we think of innovation as people coming out of, you know, Harvard and coming up with this amazing idea that is a big sea change. And the reality is, um, I I think that is overplayed in the media. Uh, 50% of GDP comes from small businesses uh, nationwide. small local businesses, a person who is a founder who is 40 years old is over two times as likely to succeed as a founder uh, that's 25 years old. There are very obvious reasons um, for that, um, which include industry experience, um, you know, uh, relationships, life experience, those types of things. And so there are times that I, I, I think that, you know, the venture capital, the shark tankification of the, you know, of our sort of business world is not always productive. It's entertaining. um, But really, I I feel like we should be spending more time focused on um, local people who are going to keep their resources locally. There's plenty of studies about the multiplier effects of local business, how they continue to recycle that money, spend on other um, local businesses, um, those types of things. So that's, that's one of the things that gets me excited. Yeah, I mean, and like, you know, you're saying it's, you know, I think I heard you say something about, you know, figuring out how to fuel the dreams of, you know, just about (laughs) anyway. But, you know, but really what I hearing you say is, yes, of course, the, you know, being able to prop up somebody and their individual dream, but it's really a bigger vision because that individual dream is having a really big impact on our communities. And we would hate for those to not be fueled and, you know, be stalled on the side of the road somewhere. So. Absolutely. Are there. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to, are there any examples that you can point to or those kind of things that for disclosure uh, reasons? That's, I mean, uh, no, we normally talk to, our, we You're, try to let our borrowers know that, um, well, you know, well, how about gonna, those, the, yeah, I'm sorry, to, to, yeah. that we're going to talk about them to help sort of, uh, you know, promote what we're doing. But um, I mean, there, there's a small business, um, uh, Pivot Produce, um, a guy named Eric Sanford. He's a, um, has been a cook um, down at Five Points. Um, uh, and I love what, that place. Yeah, it is a great place. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the things been. he's done is he's sort of become a middleman for local farmers and local restaurants. And so we gave him a loan through the Food Entrepreneur Program um, to to get a vehicle to so that he could basically uh, be more efficient in uh, linking um, local farmers with the local restaurants. Now, 
I think that has a big impact. That's a $5,000 loan. Um, he, he's a great guy. What he's, you know, I think he's still even working out his business model. It's, you know, it's, it's not quite there yet, but, um, we took a, you know, risk to invest in him. He's been a, a great person to work with, but uh, that's something I'm proud of, you know, uh, other people, and I get it, you know, downtown, a new hotel, uh, opens up and the mayor is there and, you know, it's, there's a lot of fanfare and I'm not saying there shouldn't be, but, um, that's a pretty cool idea and a pretty good story about somebody who it's not just about how he's doing in his business, but it is actually helping our, our local community. Yeah, exactly. And as a consumer, someone who, you know, is going to restaurants, I would really love to have more, you know, locally sourced, um, you know, items on, on my, on my plate. So, uh, you know, I appreciate that. It's a good idea, but you know, thanks because that's what I want to eat too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, and I know that, um, it's one of these things that we, I've actually talked to Kevin before about, uh, sometimes how do we, how do we finance um, the the good things? And I know that you actually have some interesting ways that you help people to do that because that's it. It is one of the unfortunate things we don't all have cash to pay for everything that we need right then. So um, you know, financing is important, and and how do we do that in a way that's uh, you know affordable um, is not extractive of of the consumer. Um, and I don't here I'm putting you on spot, but I know what is he talking about? We, do tell, we, do you know, tell. yeah, we we chat about this one time we met and and chatted about what he was doing and he was doing such a great job we couldn't even really help out (laughs) yeah i mean you know the typical stereotype about solar is oh it's so expensive and the truth is that the cost of solar has come down dramatically from those days when i was trying to get free labor to make it pencil out uh it it now it now does pencil out and is you know well under half the price of what it used to be but nevertheless, you still have to come up with a sizable uh, initial investment. And some, the financing that, I mean, in many sectors of business and certainly in many aspects of trying to implement sustainable technologies and for sure in the solar industry, finance has been a real key place to leverage adoption. And this isn't just TFS, this is across the board. Many people are familiar with the Solar City story where they, um, they really helped to expand this idea that you could lease a system and get solar essentially in a financed way through, um, through using your savings on your electric bill to pay for the essentially the debt service. It was a lease payment in the case of Solar City. So we had our own versions of innovating products that we thought, you know, when you get into the finance space, there are all kinds of characters. Many of them are not particularly interested in benefiting the community. They're, 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 um, they're savvy business folks looking to, um, looking to do well. And uh, some of the practices we were seeing we thought were not as, um, not as favorable to consumers as we wanted them to be. So we really had two major efforts, and there's lots of little nuance. I've spent a lot of time on the finance side, but um, but the two major efforts we had first, we worked with the um, a local, several local credit unions, but we settled on one local credit union that we built out a uh, a loan program with that credit union. That you know, when we first approached the credit unions, they were like solar. I don't know. It's risky. It's risky. Where's my security? Like, I don't want to go take these panels off somebody's roof. They didn't really comprehend the difference between giving somebody a loan that increases their uh, debt to income ratio versus a loan that reduces their debt to income ratio because it's taking... It came with the funding source. Exactly. With the reduced electricity. yeah. Yeah. So most lenders didn't look at that transfer of the utility payment to the debt service. And so we were able to work with this credit union and get a program off the ground that had, um, that was transparent. Most of the solar financing out there has hidden fees associated with it. They typically, in order to make it a good sales proposition, they typically will reduce the uh, the interest rate. So they'll say, I have a 1.99% interest loan, uh, uh, loan or a 2.99% loan. Well, there's no 2.99% loan. 
uh, it's actually an 8% loan, but they've bought down, they have seller's points behind the scene. You don't see it. Customer signs a 2.99% loan, but they pay two or 3000 or $4,000 more for the product in order to buy down that loan up front. So we worked with this credit union to have the, our loan transparent, have a low interest rate. It was, you know, in the 6% range when it started. And um, it was just good terms for the, for, the, uh, for the customers. And as the credit union has matured with this loan product, they have come to feel that it is either the most or one of the most well-performing assets in their lending portfolio. That's interesting. And in turn, they've lowered the interest rate on it because they've realized, the hey, these are, lower, you're, yeah. bringing, you're bringing uh, people who generally have higher credit than we usually lend to. They're paying their bills because they don't want to end up in default and paying more to the off their utility bills if their system gets shut down. So it's, it's just worked out really well in terms of finding a local partner where we could build something that was more customer friendly and innovative. And then I think the product we were talking about is that nonprofits, nonprofit organizations that don't pay taxes, um, it doesn't make sense for them to purchase a system because they miss out on the federal the tax, tax credit, which is a big sure. part of the incentives for solar. And again, there are lots of participants in that space. Most of them are looking for very high returns and, um, and uh, come at it from a little bit different angle than we typically are coming at things. And so we've worked very hard to work with how do we find a financing partner that is willing to... Um, willing to unpackage where all the risk is in these deals and let us take the risk where we feel that it's controlled for us and let them take the risk that's controlled for them and in turn end up with a more competitive product. And so um, we've done things where typically a financing partner for a nonprofit system owns the system and they're responsible for making sure that it is operating properly. Well, if we can provide them with guarantees that we're operating it properly, that's what we do. That's our business. Mm -hmm. we, Makes we, sense. We know what that costs, and so we can take that off their shoulders. Um, we're willing to stand behind those systems. So what we typically did is took our, our profit margin on those jobs and put them on the tail end of the income stream from that financing. So it's that is a long-term decision yeah. on our part, but it reduces the riskiest part of the, uh, of the income stream that they're anticipating. And that helped to bring down our interest rates so that it was a more competitive offering for nonprofits in Tucson. So those are some of the things that that uh, we had talked about. Yeah. And and this is why I have a business crush on Kevin <laughs> and his group. Uh, it's because, honestly, I mean, uh, the work that, you know, he, he describes it very quickly, but the work that goes into that, I negotiate with... Um, banks and credit unions, like that is not oh, a small amount. And mm -hmm. to to really to do it to benefit your customer, I think is um, incredible. And I, I really do mean it. We, my wife and I, we actually have a TFS uh, solar array on, on our house. And we, you know, great. Uh, you guys have an amazing uh, crew that works with you. And it was a wonderful experience. But I, I really, that's always been one of the things I've really appreciated about Kevin is that he's been willing to do the work um, to do something good. He doesn't take the easy way out just for, you know, profit's sake or ease sake, those types of things. So really appreciate that. It's, absolutely. Well, and it's a, about you know, and, and a strong belief, like you're saying, impact, but in your product, you're like, I got to figure out how to, you know, how to get this to the people and to, um, and, you know, you know, to everybody, but also to the people who I think are also, you know, doing really good, you know, in what in what they're doing as well. So, cool. and that's it's interesting because we um, and I think we met again. We we keep running into each other places. Uh, it's the crush. It is. Yeah. That's right. He doesn't realize it. I'm <laughs> weirdly stalking him. Um, but you know, we uh, with the 2030 district and local first mm -hmm. Arizona the scale up project, and that is basically they were you know training businesses on uh, conservation, um, and the idea is exactly what Kevin is talking about where. Um, you, we are giving, we are giving basically loans and grants, trying to incentivize them to put these conservation plans that they came up with through training into practice. And so, uh, you know, we're offering $10,000 loans at, um, you know, three or four uh, percent. And then we're giving a thousand dollar grant on top of it because that idea is to invest in things that are good for our community. Uh, that is not profitable for, <laughs> for us. We're a nonprofit, um, but it makes a lot of sense. And the reality is that you can underwrite 
against the savings, which is is a great thing. You, you can look and say, okay, here are the things that you're, you know, you're going to do. It's going to reduce your utility bill by this much, and we can add that into, you know, whatever ratios that we're using. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things was uh, we were doing smaller $10,000 ones. At some point, we have to figure out how to uh, be able to do something for more to get um, solar involved to to get the savings and and this is I think is one of the unfortunate things is that it's that in, initial investment that often keeps us from doing things that are are actually more beneficial in the in the long run you know uh, than than just in the short term. I agree. So just why, just FYI, we we had um, the 2030 district and uh, local first on our podcast, and I did volunteer to offer up my building as the first, you know, solar project. All right, yeah, we appreciate your sacrifice. So you know, I mean, you know, guinea pig us. You know? <laughs> it, it does make me curious, though, Kevin. Are there um, growing segments right now? So we mentioned nonprofit has an interest in. in facilitating solar and obviously commercial we see it more and more parking lots and residential danny and it's a good example is there a particular area that you see in more of a growth mode than others that leads to promise or is it all sort of on an even trajectory right now well first of all you know we call it the solar coaster it's very difficult to predict where it's going it's seems like it's always changing um you know, we've just had a, a very strong period of growth. I think things are continuing uh, to grow for a variety of reasons. There are lots of different factors that are all sort of feeding into um, feeding into a, a dynamic that's, you know, just changing all the time. But um, I think the big imperative is that more and more people are seeing that, you know, there are real effects to climate change. They're feeling them directly. And there's a real sense out there, at least the customers that were the people that we're talking to, that it's time to do something. And that maybe the notion that someone else is going to step in and fix this problem is uh, remote at best, is, is I think the, the feeling on the street. And so I think that's driving a lot of interest. I think we've solidly moved out of the phase where people want to know how it works and whether it works into a phase of everyone has seen solar in a carport on somebody's roof. They know somebody who's got it. There's enough systems out there that there's a level of trust. When I was first installing systems, you know, people wanted to know whether this, you know, they had a solar hot water heater back in the 80s that failed after two years. And they wanted to know, is this is this going to do the same thing? And and now we're, we're really past that and at a place that uh, people believe it works. And it's a matter of um, how to finance it for them, whether their house is a good uh, a good fit or their business is a good fit. Um, so there is there is quite a bit of growth. I don't think it's limited to one sector or another right now. Um, there's the utilities. Tosin Electric Power has uh, voluntarily committed to uh, upping their percentage coming from renewables to 30% by uh, 2030. This is huge. They're required to, to, to do 15% by 2025. So the fact that utilities are on board and pushing it uh, 30% is a big lift. Uh, to some of us, it doesn't feel like enough. We want 100%, right? But figuring out the- Take what you can get. Well, yeah, 30 is on the way to 100. It's on the way to 100. And figuring out the technological challenges of moving from, from one stage to the next is, uh, is something you have to do stepwise so you've got the utilities doing it you've got um, the, the parking structures you're seeing around town on the schools on businesses uh nonprofits that we we do a lot of uh, work with that that sector is also growing and um and and resident i mean it's all growing residential customers are are um are, are also enthusiastic and there's Stuff in good the good financing available for them and so um you know, we we still have a, situ, situ, a situation where, you know, if you don't have decent credit and you don't have the money, you're left out of the game. And and that's true, not just for solar. That's sort of, yeah. that's a big, bigger issue that we are trying to address in some other interesting ways within our own business. But society-wide, we're facing that, and that applies to solar adoption as well. Yeah. Nice. 
Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm so curious. You know, what what are you guys thinking about? I mean, you're maybe still in the infancy, but as that as you, you know, develop that more as far as you know, how do you make it accessible for the people who don't have, you know, credit and don't have any money, and you know, and then how do we, you know, replicate that to like you say to other, other sectors and where that's leaving people out. So it may be a conversation for another, uh, another, you know podcast or recording or even just lunch but man you got me intrigued for sure well there's no shortage of these big big issues that we have to deal with for sure and it's true and i don't think anybody has an answer to that issue i think it's being worked out there are people investing in it across the board um you know we think that our efforts towards employee ownership and the way that we've structured our company will help with that within our own company long term but that's not enough to solve the problem in our entire community. That's just like one little, one little spot. So that was the next question. Tell me about, you know, your employee ownership model or cooperative, right? Tell us, explain, explain how that works. Yeah. So in, 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 um, 2007, we converted January of 2007, we converted to a worker owned cooperative and what had happened in, you know, I was a neuroscientist, not a business major. I knew nothing about business. And, um, what I observed as, TFS grew um, was that the company, our company has a significant need for capital. We might make a certain amount in profits in a given year, and we can't just hand that out to everybody the way, you know, my understanding of some professional services companies like a law firm, you know, at the end of the year, they just, they just, whatever is extra, they, they pay out to their shareholders and they start at zero every year. We're not in a position to do that. We we have, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of dollars of vehicles that we that we have to purchase or own and operate. We have inventory that you know we have to buy and and hold in order to get the best deals for uh, for customers um, and not to slow down our operations. You know, all, there's all kinds of capital requirements that I found that uh, I had to retain capital in the company coming out of profits. I, when I started the company, I didn't have, I didn't have a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or actually really anything to, to put into covering those kinds of costs. So they've all come out of, out of profits over the years. And, and at some point I realized that although the employees of our company were creating a tremendous amount of value that was turning into, that was that value being our profits, we couldn't put their name on it because it had to stay in the company to fund the capital needs of the company. And in talking with lots of other businesses and, and, and getting exposure over time and reading a few books that heavily influenced me, um, I came upon the idea of employee ownership, where I now have a methodology to put employee owners' names on capital that has to stay in the company. And as employees, they, they're really largely creating the value that we deliver to the community and because I can't pay that out, I can instead have them give them the opportunity to become an owner. And in their ownership, they have an internal capital account is what we call it in the co-op world where their name is on a, on a chunk of the equity associated with the company. So that's kind of the, the, the broad stroke of it. We also, not everybody can become an owner. There are requirements for becoming an owner. You, just because you're an employee doesn't make you an owner in our iteration of being a worker co-op. And so we also have a program that any employee can participate in that is a profit sharing program. So at the end of the year, we look at our profits and we will give employees the option to take it as a cash bonus or to double the amount of the award if they retain it in the company through the purchase of um, preferred stock in the company. So they're owned, they're investors as opposed to voting owners. But that has been a way to help uh, employees who may not be owners also retain some capital and increase the amount of the profits that they can put their name on at the end of the year. So we've really focused on those kinds of issues to help uh, help address the, the disparity between the value that employees create for a business and what they end up getting to put their name on. Got it. Just thinking a lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So what have the results of that been for you? What, what, what are your takeaways by having taken that endeavor on? Well, first, I would say that because we're 
so mission driven as a company. We have always from the start been here to make renewable energy successful in Southern Arizona. That's what we're doing here. And when we hire employees, they're hired because to some extent of their alignment with that mission. So before we became employee owned, we already had a level of um, buy-in and investment from our staff. But I think it, it has helped to support a growing um, connection to our mission and to, and to the business amongst employee owners. We started with 14 employee owners. We're now uh, approaching, we're 17 right now, but we have several people have to go through a candidacy program and to learn how to be a good owner. It's uh, really, I think, quite analogous to a business version of democracy. And so while you can do it without education, you don't end up getting the be best results. Our hope is that we can provide enough education that people can um, exercise their sort of democratic um, uh, responsibility with, with good information and help to uh, steer the company in the right direction in the years to come. But we're delighted with it. We've had uh, profitable years the last few years. People have their, nobody's gotten any cash out, but they've gotten their name on equity associated with, um, with the, the retained earnings in the company. So I think it's, it's, it's been quite successful. It, it's not easy to change from, a, from an organization that has a single owner, single leader to a, a democratic institution. And, um, and so we're learning as we go. We're a little over two years into it and we still have some way to go to learn how to, how to be good at it. But, uh, but I think it's been a very positive experience. And the feedback from the team is they favor it as opposed to life before anybody tell you that, boy, this is democracy stuff's kind of tough. Can we just go back to command and control? You hear any of that? I don't think we look at the world that way. There was not a, there's, there's not a whole lot of rear view mirror yeah. gazing in our company. Good. Uh, I mean, not that feedback isn't valuable, but, uh, I think for the most part, we're all trying to think every day of how we, how we implement sort of continuous improvement and what aren't we doing well enough now that we can do better tomorrow. So I think most of our discussions are in that direction as opposed to, gosh, I wish we could just go back to, um, you know, not. Yeah. It says, how do we do it better? Yeah. yeah so, we're in it. Let's, let's make it better. Yes. That's good. Yes. And democratizing capital, I think is, is an important discussion. It's something that has, more legs than it used to that I, I don't know if that's now like a dirty term for some people um, because of, you know, all the movements towards privatization over time. But um, that idea of giving and and I've been running into funds where um, there are sort of local uh, loan funds that are being created where there's buy in from community members and then other people invest um, as well. But um, they are deciding, you know, who um, there's a place, the Iwo Jima project out of uh, Boston. Um, but uh, it's the the local community people who are deciding where that money is going to be lent and who it's going to be invested in. Um, I think some of those notions of, of ownership, democratizing ownership, some of the issues that we have with whether it's gentrification or otherwise are addressed um, because our, our society is basically, it's built around ownership. And so if we can find ways for more people to have an ownership stake I mean, I, I think it's one of the things, you know, here it is, conscious capitalism. So we're, we're talking within that sort of framework. Um, and, you know, we were talking again bef before the show just how Arizona is maybe a little bit behind on um, being able to uh, support um, more cooperatives um, where businesses may want to do it, but it's not that easy to do. Well, you know what, what it sort of is sparking for me, and I may not have fully formed a thought here, but uh, you'll let me know. But the, uh, um, so one of the things that is, you know, that I, you know, personally, you know, dislike about investing and, you know, capitalism and, and the stock market is that it, I, it, it's just not what I think it should be. And I, and it's not what I think it originally was and that originally it was a way for anyone to invest their money into something that they believed in you know so this is this i, I want to be you know i have money to invest there's a 
group of people out here who want to do, you know, bring some product or service, you know, to the market, to the community. You know, I want, I like that service. I believe in it. I believe it can make money for me. I also, you know, believe in what it's doing. And so that's how I'm going to choose where I put my money and I'm going to leave it there because I'm not, you know, trying to get a very quick return. It's not gambling where I, I happen to get lucky and choose the right stock and I get a really big return, um, you know, right away. And then, you know, who knows you pull out and then all of a sudden it crashes and, you know, I, I should stop before I, you know, start unraveling even more. But instead, it's something that you want to invest in in the long term, and you're you're truly an investor. You're you're you know you're you're in it for the long haul. You're you want your money to you know continue to support that product, service, whatever, um, you know, getting better and better. And so it seems like, although it isn't, um, you know, public investing, and uh, it it is, I think. Uh, what the true spirit of it when it started. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's interesting too. So just to jump on that, because we're working on something where we're trying to bring a crowdsourced um, option for equity investment um, and on a micro scale. So we're um, unaccredited investors. Um, people can invest as much as or as little as $100 into a company. Um, there's a group out of San Francisco called WeFunder that we're talking to about trying to have basically a localized uh, version of it. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting to be able to put up um, local companies on a on a platform and those people who want to invest locally, because right now the way we invest locally is we go spend our money at a place, and that's great. I think that's a great way to support your local businesses, buy local, those types of things. But this is a way to do exactly what you're talking about, which is to invest in our community and to do so... Um, in a more democratic way, because, you know, up to this point, again, I think, you know, my opinion is that the, the deck is a little bit stacked, <laughs> um, where people, where people have the, uh, you know, people with more money have a lot more opportunities. Um, but this idea that you, you know, somebody with as little as a hundred dollars could, could vote with that, um, with their money to invest in a place locally. There's right now, there's no real, ability or option to do that. It would be very hard to find those businesses, but um, to create a marketplace where um, where we have that ability, I think is really interesting. And we're, we're hoping to get something uh, done by this fall when the 10 West Festival uh, comes around. Um, but whether or not we do, it's, I, I do think the, the concept and the fact that we're even having the conversations is, that is good movement, um, you know, uh, to break down some of what people are, I think, um, getting very disinterested in, in terms of what's going on, you know, Wall Street and the, and the way investments uh, take place um, and, and trying to, again, f have more control over, you know, where our, uh, where our funds and where our investments go. Yeah, I would say, you know, some of these things, as far as social experiments, they take a little while to ferret out. Like, we can kind of point back to 80s, 90s timeframes, some of the things that were done um, in legislation and just sort of mindsets. Um, it sort of takes a while to figure things out. We can look back here now in hindsight and see that, you know, the majority of the dollars have gone to the top 1% and that we've got these institutions that are... Uh, you know, scaling everything to the top, right? We used to have 50 media outlets. Now we have like five and the top five banks own two thirds or are in control of the two thirds of the world's wealth. Like these staggering numbers that if we had looked at that on a chart and say, hey, this is where these decisions are going to lead us. We all probably would have said, boy, I don't think that's in our best interest. I think we need something different. So the idea that, okay, we've collected some information we're heading on a bad trajectory, or at least we can improve our trajectory. I'll leave a judgment out. Um, solutions like what you're advancing, and you know, from a, a financial perspective, we are seeing more and more options as investors to be able to go put your dollars in places that impact locally or impact more directly where you want to, rather than I'm, I'm hoping that by investing in a particular type of fund or category that it's gonna truly hit sustainability. That's a hope. I can't see it, I can't measure it, we're seeing more things that if it's in your neighborhood, then you know, I can tell that, oh, those roads are getting fixed or boy, that building has finally got its 
roof repaired, right? Those things become tangible if we keep it close and local. So what you're pursuing, I think, is fantastic. And we need to continue to bring those options to the table and bring awareness to them. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting to have a discussion where there are four business people sitting around. And I don't think this is the typical discussion that you would have with four business people necessarily sitting around the table. You know, you'd hear a lot of Milton Friedman type of stuff and leave the market alone and, and those types of things. And I, I do think, unfortunately, it's uh, gotten us to, to where we are a bit. Um, it's, we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater necessarily, um, but that we, we do need to understand that um, we need a more inclusive economy than, than the one we have. And, and you know, I, I think um, personally, like I'm always somebody, I'm about uh, equality of opportunity, not always of outcomes, different different things are going to happen. Uh, you know, you can't control all of that. Um, but we should, we should do our best, um, to give everybody the, the same opportunities. Um, and that includes to, to build wealth and, um, to succeed, um, you know, to fulfill, you know, to aspire to, um, do something like Kevin has done, which again, I'm, I'm always just struck by the fact that you took, um, your own ownership and, and, and basically broke it up to um, to share give, it. to share it, and we're we're now even going through uh, where uh, they call it. I think the silver tsunami, and what it is, it's a lot of business owners um, who are baby boomers who are they don't necessarily have um, people that they want to leave their companies to, and there's this. Um, there's a movement to um, basically turn over companies to uh, employees, um, and good for those people. Like I just, I really uh, applaud people who um, do that because they have a, a broader view of, uh, you know, what an inclusive economy uh, looks like. Completely agree. We're um, running thin on time here. Was there anything else you gentlemen wanted to make sure we got, uh, got an opportunity to speak to? Yeah. Anything that's just you know, really important, even if it's some sort of, uh, you know, personal, uh, you know, something that's going on that you think it's important for us to, to know about or to share with our, our people? I think to me, you know, the, the thing that I, that drives how I have thought about technicians for sustainability is that businesses are, are an entrepreneur's chance to create a little piece of society. And so I've tried to build the society that I want to live in within my own company. And I think the more you talked about people retiring and passing their companies on to employees, uh, you know, I, I would, I would love to see, um, I would love to see people who are creating new businesses or who have businesses now, uh, put some of their entrepreneurial, um, attention towards, well, what 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 do they want society to look like, and and how should their company look to manifest that? And uh, I think that kind of consciousness around what you're doing and how you're forming your your uh, company ultimately would 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 send us in um, a positive direction. It's certainly been positive for me in my experience with TFS, and and uh, I think people in the community uh, appreciate it. And it and it makes me feel good that I'm creating something that I that I'm uh, proud of and feel well, good about. you know, and I think it's it's nice that we look at you with with admiration, and you know, I would say that I I do as well. And yet, let's figure out how to normalize it, right? So it's so it isn't you know you, we don't have to have the business crush or whatever we were calling it on you because you're, you know, you're ultimately, yeah, yeah, you're one right. of a million and you're just, and we have the crush because you're going out and doing the things that we all believe are the right things to do. So what's stopping us? Let's, you know, what's stopping me? I'm definitely very curious about, you know, a, a cooperative, um, ownership model, uh, for, for my own company. You know, I, when, you know, at one point asked someone about employee ownership and they're like, you know, on a different type of model and they're like, well, you're not really big enough for that. Well, but you don't have to be big to do a cooperative and it's in that democratizing and creating a, a holacracy, you know, type uh, organization is what I want and I haven't quite figured out how to do it well, but you have. So 
Well, and let's it, not say figured out, just to be clear. <laughs> well, there is, it is all a work figuring. in progress. Yeah. Hey, I didn't say progress. it was perfect. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's all yeah. a work in progress. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I, I would say is just to, to go back um, and to sort of reiterate, I hope that people uh, can, can focus on the small as well as the big um, and smoke, uh, focus locally. Um, again, uh, Venture capital is something we spend a lot of time talking about. And um, just b before we leave, uh, last year, 79% of venture capital went to male-only founder teams. Only 2% went to female-only teams. Wow. And only 1% of venture capital went to African-American founders. And so... Um, to me, that's uh, that's not representative of um, the innovation and the talent that's out there um, on micro levels. Um, we everybody can make a, a difference. You don't have to be a huge investor um, to to be able uh, to to do that. And I'm hoping that there are things to come, and we can uh, keep our foco focus uh, locally. Um, as as when we're watching our portfolio and those things, uh, we also think about what's going on in our own communities. Well, thank you. I mean, I, those statistics are a bit shocking. It yeah. definitely isn't how you create the kind of world, you know, that I want to live in. Probably not, you know, that the rest of us do. So I'm already looking forward to, you know, six or 12 months from now when we can bring you guys back again and find out what's going on, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, equal, equalizing access to solar and, you know, what's going on with, uh, you know, crowdfunding local companies. Uh, so we can, you know, hear about how that's advancing and how you guys are continuing continuing to, you know, help us, uh, you know, have the kind of societies that we want to live in. So thank you to you both for, for being here and mark your calendars for, you know, six, <laughs> 12 months from now. <laughs> it sounds great. Thank you so much for, for having us. Yeah. You guys, uh, I'm so glad we have this recorded because you articulated things that, uh, that are sort of rattle in my brain without any cohesion and you put good, uh, lyrics to the music in my mind. So thank you for that. You shared a lot of great things. <laughs> 